When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Mrs Thatcher, I think we pushed her over the edge. We put up the unemployment figures on the roof of County Hall so she could see them from Parliament when she went for a cup of tea on the terrace. So she passes me the pen and paper, the names of people who have been arrested, and then I get arrested. So I get taken in a van with 11 women to Kennington Police Station, put in a cell, and they've given you one phone call. So I phone the chief whip to say, I can't make the meeting, I'm in the thick. I think the gloss has come off Johnson now that Trump has gone, and he's looking pretty isolated. And his style of politics is looking pretty isolated as well. You cannot have a a clown in charge when you're dealing with the issues like the pandemic. One anti-Semite in the Labour Party is too many. So you don't calculate the numbers, you calculate the pain that's inflicted. And that's been immense. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and in this podcast, I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success. How did writers, politicians and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? My guest today is John McDonnell MP, till very recently Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. A lifelong socialist, his experience in the top leadership team at the Greater London Council in the 1980s helped forge his reputation as a powerful and committed socialist, making him, I think it's fair to say, a feared figure to the Conservative Party. But in the past few months, since Labour's defeat in the 2019 general election under Jeremy Corbyn, he's consciously defined himself as an elder state of the left, trying to forge a very practical, pragmatic way forward to holding power again after the election of Joe Biden in the US presidential election could now be his moment again. Uh, I have to say, I think uh, John McDonnell is the single most intriguing figure in British politics today. So thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Simon. 
I want to start with the fact you're a Liverpool boy, born just a few years after the Beatles, son of a docker and a shop worker. What was the young John like and what did you want to be? I was born in Liverpool and lived the early years of my life there, but we then moved to Norfolk, where my mother originally came from, because my mum and dad met during the Second World War. My dad was in the army and before he went to Germany, he was stationed in East Anglia and then met my mother. So my dad was from Liverpool, mother, mother from Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. So my early years in Liverpool, and then we moved to Norfolk. My mum was a cleaner, but then when we moved to Norfolk, she worked behind the biscuit counter in British home stores for about 30 years. So we lived off broken biscuits. It was wonderful. My dad was a docker, but then became a bus driver, uh, active trade unionists. Both of them extremely socially committed. It was Irish Catholic background. My main influences were a combination of Catholicism and socialism, and trade unionism in particular from my dad, because he was always a branch secretary and he was regularly organising industrial action strikes, etc. So that was my background. It was socially very aware, but in that very traditional Irish Catholic way. I gather that there was a point when you did think about becoming a priest. Well, it's that tradition in that sort of family. Someone has to go off. <laughs> that was very serious. Mass every Sunday, benediction Sunday evening. Often I'd be going to uh, Mass during the week as well as a youngster, and I'd serve on the altar. And then when I was uh, 11, 12-ish, the local parish priest said, do you think you've got a vocation? And I thought I might have. And so I went off to a Catholic boarding school for four years. And it was to get you into a Catholic environment before you went on to a minor seminary. I did think I had a vocation at the time, but um, I reached the age of 16 and a combination of um, a combination of meeting girls. And um, <laughs> and also by that time I was, I was, I was increasingly political as well. I'm not a Catholic. I don't, I'm not a believer now. Um, but the Catholicism did actually shape a lot of my thinking then. Pope John XXIII, who was quite a, in many ways, a, a revolutionary pope. It's interesting, you know, Pope Francis at the moment, some of the statements that Pope Francis has made have been so radical on a whole range of fronts, particularly about confronting inequality and poverty. Well, this is liberation theology. It's a very Catholic idea. Exactly. Back in, certainly in, in um, Latin America and elsewhere, you had worker priests and others. So I, I think I was inspired by all of that at the time. The thing is that you did go to grammar school, which is academically selective, but I gather, John, you originally left without A-levels. Yeah, what, what happened, happened? Well, what happened was is that in those days, it was the 11 plus system, which was horrible. And me and my brother, I think we were the only kids in our school who've actually got the 11 plus, ordinary working class community. But you went through that horrible system where you then went off to grammar school, then all your friends went to secondary mod. It was horrible, it really was. And people's futures were determined at that early age by that one exam on that one morning. It was appalling. I went off to the Catholic boarding school for, for the priesthood. Then I came back to the grammar school. And to be honest, at that stage as well, I was, I'd had enough of education. I wanted to do other things. And I sort of dropped out. And then I started touring around doing different pieces of factory work and things like that. I wound up back in Lancashire, actually, settled down there for a few years, got married, got married very early at the age of 20. My then wife, wonderful person, said, look, you know, you should, you should think about your future. So I was in the shop floor. I was making televisions at the time, 
Uh, it was just physical really? manual labour and uh, on sh different shifts. So I went to Burnley Tech College and did my A-levels there for a year in between different shifts and then decided to go to university. I went to Brunel University in, in, near my constituency now because it was a sandwich course. You could work for six months and study for six months. And that was it. I, I sort of stumbled into it. Well, you say that. I mean, the way that it looks to an, uh, someone listening to your story is all this self-motivation. Where did that come from? Mum and Dad, I think. Mum and Dad. A couple of things that came from both of them is always work hard, do your best, and for my mum, be kind. Who were your big influences? Because you were reading a lot. I suppose some of the early socialists at the time. I systematically read a lot about the history of the, uh, the well, obviously the Labour Party, trade union movement, socialism at this time. And it evolved, really. It evolved right the way through the canons of socialism that were British socialism, and particularly you now starting with Robert Owen and cooperation, then moving on to the struggle for democracy under the Chartists. I, re I read a lot of history, individual biographies as well. And then, of course, you move into that phase in, in the late 19th century in terms of you come across Morris and the, the work that he did with Ruskin about aesthetics and what beauty is all about and the quality of life that people should have. And then you confront, then you confront Marx. How can you understand capitalism or think that you understand capitalism without actually understanding Marx? And that's it, basically. And for me, that then took me off on quite a train of thought along basic Marxist literature, are always connected to the history of our movement, how it translates into the British socialism. Yeah, so yeah, I sort of devoured books all the time. But even when I, when I was a youngster as a Catholic, I would, lead, I would read the lives of the saints. <laughs> Excellent. Did you have a favourite saint? I was named after John the Baptist. Unfortunately, he was beheaded. But anyway, that's another matter. He wasn't afraid to stir things up. No, that's exactly it. Wasn't afraid to stir things up. He was a sort of an advocate, preparing the ground for change, and and that's why. Well, that's why he was beheaded, basically, because he was preparing the ground for quite radical change with the coming of Jesus. You mentioned the importance of being kind as something that your parents really drummed into you, along with the politics. And I just want to ask briefly: you and your first wife ran a children's home, children who'd suffered real abuse and trauma. That sounds incredibly difficult, and you clearly made a huge difference. What happened was, I moved down to London from the north, looking for accommodation. My then wife was a nursery nurse, and the university said, well, actually, the local authority are looking for house parents in children's homes. Would you be interested? So we went along, individual children's homes. It was like a large council house. You would become the house parents. And literally, I think, what was I, 22? So we turn up. And there's eight to ten kids you're looking after. And you have someone who does the cleaning, someone who does the washing, and then a few staff to help you as well. Literally, that was it. All of these children, a lot of them had been in care, taken into care because of, often because of mental health issues within their families. Some of them because of abuse, of course, you had that. But often what was happening is these children were being moved around from placement to placement, often where a foster placement had broken down, or from institution to institution. And if you remember in those days... Children were in large institutions as well, like separate, almost boarding schools. And what we did is we basically took the view we, we would not allow these children to be moved from place to place again. They would stay with us and we'd prepare them either to return home or to foster parents or 
if the parent didn't want them to, to lose contact or couldn't cope with them completely all the time, often because they would stay us for a few days of the week and then would be the parent or parents the next day. And I did that for, was it 10, 13, 12 years, something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> so let me take you forward to, there's a great photograph of you in, in a trench coat standing next to Ken Livingston in the early 80s when you were part of his team that took over the GLC, the Greater London Council. You were chair of the Finance Committee, you were his deputy. If I may say, you looked dashing and purposeful. This is a time there were big grants being given out to community groups. It felt like London had a socialist government. How do you look back on that time? Let me just go back one step first. When I was at university, I was at Brunel University doing a sandwich course, working at the same time in the children's home. Everyone in my year wanted to become either a trade union organiser or a politician or whatever. I didn't. I, I wanted to become a manager in industry. I was going to transform industry, move it into a particular cooperative or socialist model. And I had all these ambitions of becoming an industrial manager. And I couldn't get a job. And I think when I went for interviews, I'd come out with all this stuff. Well, I think they'd be shocked about the ideas. Well, I think I was sort of over-enthusiastic. Over I couldn't get a job. So eventually there was a job that came up at the National Union of Mine Workers for the social insurance department dealing with advice on social security injuries, that sort of thing, health and safety. And I applied for that job not expecting to get it. And I got it. And that got me into the trade union movement. And I thought, well, actually, this is the sort of work I need to do. And the GLC elections came up. It was the first election after the election of Margaret Thatcher. So it became actually a very significant election. And I was going to be the organiser, the agent for my friend who was going to run as the candidate. He dropped out and we had no candidate. So then people said, well, you better be the candidate. So I sort of stumbled into it. So by accident, I get elected to the GLC. And then the next thing I know, I'm chair of finance and deputy leader. It was the election in which we could demonstrate uh, the scale of opposition to Margaret Thatcher and her policies. And we wanted it to be a radical example of what socialism could mean in one city. We developed equalities policies that are accepted now. But if you remember in those days, it was all we were described as loony left. Disgraceful term. But it was because we were pushing at issues like equalities issues for women, BAME community and LGBT in particular. And the media just took us apart. Ken Livingston would appear on, on the sun on the front page as the most dangerous man in Britain, that sort of thing. And most of the policies were advocating then, you know, were mainstream now. You know. I was part of a group that developed the idea of what we call in and against the state. We'll go into the state, we'll win elections or we'll become um, civil servants or bureaucrats or whatever, but then we'll transfer power outwards to the people themselves. It wasn't just about winning the positions in the state apparatus, it was about transforming that relationship. And that's what we did. It was exciting, but Mrs Thatcher, I think we pushed her over the edge because at County Hall, we decided we'd put up the unemployment figures on the roof of County Hall so she could see them from Parliament when she went for a cup of tea on the terrace of Parliament. And I think that pushed her over the edge. I think that was it. She said, right, we'll abolish the GLC now. And that's what she did. But we fought that campaign and nearly won. My mother has very fond memories when she ran a women's group, Asian women's group in the 80s of coming to County Hall for tea with Ken and that whole atmosphere. It was buzzing. That was the whole thing, really. And I think that's what, if we'd have got into government, that's what it would have been, that, that same atmosphere I wanted to replicate. I can always remember when we set up, it was the police monitoring groups. 
than the police were a nightmare. I got in 83, I'll gossip here just briefly. I walked through Parliament Square in 83 on the way to the GLC meeting. Green and Common women are in Parliament Square and they're singing and they're all getting arrested. So I'm walking along and one, one of the women who's the illegal observer gets arrested as well. So she passes me the pen and paper, the names of people who've been arrested, and then I get arrested. So I get taken to Nevada, 11 women, to Kennington Police Station, put in a cell, and they give you one phone call. So I phoned the chief whip to say, I can't make the meeting, I'm in the thick. They sent Paul Botang down to get me out. But I got prosecuted for assault. We went to court. They came up with their evidence. They gave four different stories about how I'd leapt over a barrier, jumped on the back of a police officer, assaulted another, thumped another. What was wonderful, um, there was an American tourist who had a cine camera, it wasn't video then, a cine camera, and so filmed it. We all got off and that was it really, but they fitted us up. It just shows you how it was then and actually the culture in some areas of the Met hasn't changed at all, you know. But yeah, funny day, so. to your personal voice and how you used it at that time though because you did clash with Ken Livingstone over rate capping and this was a time when the Conservative government was cutting local authority budgets. You were prepared to break the law on principle. Why was that stand so important? Mrs Thatcher uh, was introducing legislation which would have taken the ability of the Greater London Council and local authorities right the way across the country to raise funds and then, and then determine where those those funds were spent. It was undermining not just our ability to spend, but it was basically democratic decision-making at Bill Gulf, because it was a huge issue. And so the decision was taken that um, we would all, on one particular day, refuse to set a rate that would cut the services, and we'd try then to coalesce together in confrontation with the government and push the government to change what then happened, and there was different tactics, and what then happened is when it came to it, a number of local authority leaders who'd signed up to that strategy decided it was too risky and backed down. And that's where the, the row occurred between me and Ken, basically. Even though Ken and I fell out at that point in time pretty badly and pretty publicly, within a year we were working together again because the issues were so important about protecting our communities. I guess I'm interested in how you've decided when to compromise and what to stand firm on. Because another example is under the new Labour, you know, you rebelled over plans for the voting system for the City of London, which would have maintained the power of corporations. One person, one vote was clearly an important principle for you. So tell me about how you've decided when to compromise. There are, certain, there are certain lines in the sand you have to draw. So when it came to the rate capping issue, that was a line in the sand because essentially it would have meant basically central government, national government taking control of local government. And they did. Even up until now, um, the local councils don't have the independence to raise their own resources in the way that democratically local people decide. So it was a line of the sand. It's undermined democracy in this country at the local level for the last, well, four decades, basically, in a way that hasn't happened in other countries. You mentioned the City of London. What happened with the City of London is that the Labour Party 
in its first manifesto when it was first established was to abolish the city of London. Why? Because it was the only area left in the country where votes were exercised by businesses rather than individuals. And this is, it's like stepping back into the medieval period where you have businesses voting. So what happened was the Labour Party was always committed to abolishing it. And then when Tony Blair came along, he said, well, why don't we reform it? City of London came along with their reforms and it was to give more businesses more votes. <laughs> so it's completely contradictory to our policies. But Blair backed it. And I, I along with a group in the House of Commons, I organised the delaying of the legislation, blocking the legislation for nearly five years. In the end, Tony Blair gave them government time and it went through. But again, that was a very principal line in the sand. You, you know, we're a democracy. It is individuals, it is human beings in that vote, not big accountancy firms in the centre of London. I want to suddenly jump forward then to now, because here we are with Labour. At, I think it's fair to say some people think it's at risk of civil war over the anti-Semitism report that the Equalities Commission brought out. You came out straight away after Jeremy Corbyn was thrown out the party over what he'd said in reaction to that report. You called for him to be readmitted. What was your thinking? Thinking on the same lines as both Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn. No one wants a civil war. And it was interesting how similar the two statements from both Jeremy and Keir were. Keir came out and says, no one's looking for a civil war here. Jeremy said, the last thing we want is, is, is a civil war. And I fully agree. And I think what happened is we've sort of, as I said, I think we've stumbled into a major row over things we all agree upon. That's what's really extraordinary. So what I'm trying to do now is say, look, on the anti-Semitism issue, it has been a nightmare. We've got to come out of this nightmare. It's been a really dark night. Mistakes have been made. We accepted that. Apologies have been made time and time again, and I repeat it even now. You know, the number of apologies we've made to the uh, uh, Jewish community, and we need to keep on apologising to them as well. But we've got a way forward now. The HRC report has been published, set of recommendations, which actually everyone has agreed with about how we move forward on them. Jeremy said we should implement them. Keir has as well. Let's just move forward and implement them now, get Jeremy reinstated in the party. I think the dispute occurred over maybe some of the language that Jeremy used and the timing of his statement as well. But actually, when you look at you and you analyse what he said, it was no different from what we've been saying for quite a while and what most people agree with, which is, you know, numerically, the number of cases of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party might be small, but that's not the issue. You don't, you don't calculate numerically it's pain it's the pain and the point that jeremy made ages ago one anti-semite in the labor party is too many so you don't calculate the numbers you calculate the pain that's inflicted and that's been immense we, we've all accepted that so i just want to i want to move on implement the hrc and get the labor party back into a position where we're a huge anti-racist force but also i said in a meeting last night People have got to recognise anti-Semitism has been within the party for, well, from its foundation, because it's part of society. We were the party that had Oswald Mosley as a Labour MP. He went on to found the fascist party in this country. I can remember, um, actually, interestingly enough, Diane, myself and Jeremy raised this in 2005, when the Labour Party under Tony Blair were testing posters that against Michael Howard that were anti-Semitic. Thank God they dropped them, but they were testing them at the time. What did they say? They they were depictions of of of, of Michael Howard as Shylock, 
And, uh, and if you remember, in 2005, there was a big public kerfuffle about it that we made. And to give Ben his, the people around him his due, I think Alistair Camp, they stepped in and stopped it. But it just, it was an indication that how long we've been permeated by elements of anti-Semitism. Uh, again, not on any scale, but it isn't the scale, it's the, it's the pain that's inflicted. The first cases that were thrown against Jeremy on anti-Semitism were dated from when Ed Miliband was leader, not because of Ed Miliband's fault, but because when you're in a society like this, you will have elements of that sort of either racist or misogynist abuse infiltrate into the party as well. I can remember the statements that were made, well, on LGBT issues in the 70s, 80s, etc. And that, and if you remember, there weren't that many people defending us at the time on the GRC when we were campaigning on those issues. You know, a lot of people didn't step forward and defend us then. So we've got to recognise we're a reflection of the society in which we operate in, but we've got to be better than that. And I'm hoping that's the lesson from all of this and so we can move on. I worry about the next generation coming through now. We've recruited large numbers of young people into the Labour Party. We're a huge party now, over 500,000 members, a lot of them very, very young. I'm, I'm worried that some of these issues uh, will make some leave the party. And I'm saying that you've got to stay in, you know, you've got to stay in and take us to the next level of these struggles and accept that, you know, our generation, my generation has made mistakes around this and we need to move on. How do you look back on Jeremy Corbyn's leadership? And can I ask, what would you have done differently as leader? I think it was inspirational, but this is the issue for us. When Jeremy ran for the leadership, we got him onto the ballot paper because actually there wasn't, those people who nominated him thought, well, we should have a left candidate. No one nominating him. And I was his campaign manager. None of us expected to win. You know, what, what, what my ambition was, was to maybe demonstrate we had about 25-30% of support within the ballot. And if we got if we got about 25-30%, we could demonstrate the left was still a force within the party again, and that maybe we could negotiate with whoever was leader positions for our new generation coming through on the front bench. Jeremy was 200 to 1 against in terms of winning. Anyway, Jeremy wins, and then we're thrust into um, forming administration. When Jeremy did his winning speech, on the day of his winning speech, he had people going on BBC resigning there and then from ever serving in a shadow cabinet with him, that sort of thing. So we had all that opposition. And so the situation we were in is in some ways the traditional way you'd expect the left administration to seek power and gain power is that you build the movement, you then use the power of that movement to elect you into a position, and then you're in a situation where you can then challenge for an election. We, we had the cart before the horse. We were winning elections before we'd built the movement. And if there's a mistake that we made during that five-year period, is that actually we didn't focus enough on building the movement to support us. Partly every day, almost every hour, is a battle to survive within the Parliamentary Labour Party. But we should have been more outward going, community organising, training the members a lot more, raising levels of political education. But as I say, that's looking, that's with hindsight. And But that's the sort of work we're doing at the moment. You know, we're building the movement as much as anything. One question about the new Labour years. You know, you became an MP in 1997, having contested Hayes and Harlington before and narrowly lost. You turned what had been 
a safe Conservative seat into an absolutely safe Labour seat, your seat. And I'm interested in how you used your voice through the new Labour years, because Peter Mandelson, you'll know, talked about the socialist left as being left sealed in a tomb to die. He thought that was what was going to happen to you all. That was Peter's ambition. <laughs> that was his ambition to sort of seal us away. And it nearly worked. People from the left were becoming increasingly disillusioned with Labour under, under new Labour. And what we had to do is to keep the faith with our traditions, our history, develop ideas and continue campaigning. And the way that we did it, and we held the left together and kept recruiting as best we could the next generation, is that we threw ourselves into the uh, whole range of campaigns. So even if the Labour Party leadership weren't supporting these campaigns, we would. And it ranged from, well, the anti-war campaign, obviously against Iraq, but also all those individual industrial disputes, all those environmental campaigns, all those um, campaigns around people's well, basics, you know, housing, anti-eviction, all of those. The, the attacks on migrants and asylum seekers, the Labour Party leadership not only wouldn't support those campaigns, but were part of developing the policies that actually we were campaigning against. So we built up a network of connection with those social movements on the ground. Let me take you up to more or less where we are now. In the run-up to the 2019 election, I noticed the Financial Times was running features about you, your meetings with corporate leaders. They took you very seriously. You presented a costed budget plan for your ambitious plans for renationalisation, infrastructure investment, scrapping your university tuition fees. Why was that so important? When we were on the backbenches, I chaired the Socialist Campaign Group, so the left MPs coming together. I always said to them, the left should operate on the basis that we could be in government tomorrow. No one took that seriously, but actually those individual MPs and the people that we had around us did. So I said, every time we were dealing with an issue, we've got to be better briefed and better prepared and making sure our alternatives are not just we can argue for them, but they're demonstrably viable as well and properly costed as well. Remember, I've not just been a politician, I've also been a, a council official, so I've been a civil servant as well. And I get an accusation sometimes about being a bureaucrat. I actually, I take that with a bit of um, pride because you need to ensure that whatever you do, you do it competently and you win the argument, but more importantly, you've got the means by which you can implement that policy effectively. So when uh, all the work that I did when I took over Shadow Chancellor was about developing a policy programme making sure those policies were tested almost to destruction in argument with people, but also in testing them through research and often in discussions with people you'd, you'd naturally see as our opponents are opposing the policy. But also the, part of that test was the financial calculations of just how much it would cost, where the money would come from, what the economic implications were. And so I, I did engage. I, I made sure that um, we brought together a network of think tanks. So we've now got an architecture of think tanks on the left that we lost for a long period. We've now got that. I literally, for every policy, I mapped out what organisations had any interest in that policy, wherever wherever they were situated on the political spectrum. 
and I, I, I literally headhunted them to, to discuss the policy with them, test the ideas out. And even if we failed to agree and agree to disagree, at least they understood where we were coming from. Simple as that. So, you know, thinking about being a shadow chancellor, planning for power, dealing with the reality, watching Chancellor Rishi Sunak handle coronavirus, what have you thought about him? I've been infuriated. And what's infuriated me about Rishi Sunak is that a lot of the things that we put to him when I shot a chance, we try to work with him so that here's a program we need you to implement, whatever. And what he's done is he's cherry picked on bits of that and not done it competently. The most infuriating thing, and my successor, Annalise Dodds, has been brilliant at pointing this out. It's always too late, last minute. It's been like drawing teeth. And I'll give you one example. We put to him the furlough scheme. I did detailed papers, met with him, submitted it, etc. He announces it and the unions go in and negotiate, CBI as well, Confederation British Industry. He announces it on the Friday and at half past five he announces it and at half past six I'm being interviewed. And I welcomed it at half past six, but said there's huge gaps and particularly for the self-employed. I'm not sure, I got a tsunami of attacks about, you know, this is at a time when you need to pull together um, there's a crisis and it was almost like I'd, you know, I'd, I'd attacked the country or something like that. But within literally within weeks, less than that, within 10 days, large numbers of people who are self-employed realised there was no support for them whatsoever and freelancers in particular. And what happens is, is that Sunak announces something and then literally bit by bit over the coming weeks and sometimes months, he's had to add to it or unpick it or redo it. So what's annoyed me is that actually he's been given a very easy time by the media, which is fair enough. When you're giving money away, that's usually well received. But actually what's annoyed me is that just how slow and at times inadequate he's been. So I'll just give another example. You know, He's announced the end of the furlough scheme and now he's extended it. But because he delayed the announcement of that, I've got people in my constituency who lost their jobs as a result. They were laid off and actually they most probably won't be taken back on again. Do you think that he doesn't get it because... I don't think he understands. No, I don't think he understands the real world as it is for ordinary working people. I don't think he understands it for those people who are struggling to keep their business alive. I don't think he understands anything about the need to actually be able to plan more than three months, something like that. And it's a bit like Boris Johnson. They sort of ricochet from one one idea to another. And yet it was pretty obvious what, what, what needed to be done. It's interesting. A lot of people were saying, oh, God, he's implementing your policies, you know, or he's the scale of intervention. If it was you, you'd be attacked and at least he's doing it now. And I keep saying it's not our policies. What he's doing, he's actually taking a sort of boulderized view of what we put forward and not implemented very effectively. What is it? Eat out to help out scheme. It was blindingly obvious that that was going to be help out to eat out to spread out. It was part of the overconfidence, trying to promote an idea that, you know, we're coming to the end of the pandemic when we're nowhere near that. Just that one scheme is an example of his thinking because it set, it set us back rather than helped us out. And I think it's damaged a lot of people as well. And I get frustrated. So I've been quite infuriated by his performance. And these Dodds is doing very well in pointing this out. What's annoyed me about that is that actually the media haven't given her enough attention because I think she's been very good. She's been very systematic, she's been consistent, and she's been very measured in her assessments as well, and that's why I like Can it. Can I ask about the media? Because political journalists have been telling me you're the 
only Labour politician who really handles the negative attention that comes, that handles the doorstep. And I I gather you learnt that at the GLC where you got used to how to deal with very hostile media. Is that right? Do you think, do you think you've got a, a media that's kind of inherently loaded against the well, left? You know, of course it is. Large sections of the media are owned by people who admit themselves politically oppose us. That's fair enough. If you saw a government coming towards you that was going to increase your taxes and make sure you paid your taxes... And, and was seeking to ensure that we had a more democratic media and you lost some of your power, of course they're going to oppose us. But that's the reality. That's the media we've got and that's what you have to treat with. Do you think the BBC are too deferential? Well, to what happens well? with the BBC is... In, I'm a big supporter of the BBC. But what the, what's happened with the BBC is with the cutbacks that have taken place, particularly on journalism, what's happened is, is you'll find programme after programme now will take their headlines from the, the printed media which is biased against us because that's the ownership of it. So where the BBC has, I think, fallen foul is as soon as you start cutting back on that scale and you don't have your own scale of independent journalism, particularly you know investigative journalism, as soon as you do that, you're almost destroying your own product. And then you become reliant and you've then just become the voice box for the opinions or stories in other papers. And morning after morning, I'd wake up and the Today programme would be, the headlines would have been reflecting what was in the other media. So it's certainly extent you'd understand that. But there was a time when actually the BBC actually did make the stories in terms of they'd do their own research, they'd have good journalists out there in the field. The whole point about that is, you know, of course we have a biased printed media because the owners take a different political view to us. That does infect the broadcast media, but... That's life. You just have to live with it. So what you have to be is that much more effective and professional about how you present your ideas, that much sharper in terms of rebuttal, but then also use other mechanisms. For, you know, for the first time, we, we had social media, which we never had before. And then also, we, what Jeremy did in terms of his touring around the country at large meetings, he reinvented word of mouth as a form of political communication. And it worked for a period. What happened... It worked up until 2017. Then after 2017, again, this is a self-criticism, between 17 and 19, the Tories caught up with us on social media and we invested so much more that actually, in many ways, despite us maintaining our uh, our role, if you like, in, in engagement in social media, uh, we were swamped by what hit us then. And that's the lesson for the next Labour team. Well, looking ahead, I want to finish with a, a couple of questions about the future. You have described Boris Johnson as a posher version of Trump. Given that Trump has just been voted out, how do you plan to tackle Boris Johnson now? The to well, the Tories are pretty ruthless. I think the gloss has been rubbed off Johnson to a certain extent. Um, the Tories are pretty ruthless. Uh, the men and women in grey suits will get rid of Johnson if they have to. If he becomes a liability, which he might be, they might well replace him over the next six to 12 months. And that's why I've been saying, actually, part of the targeting from the Labour Party shouldn't just be about Johnson, it should be about Sunak, because he was the obvious replacement for him. I think, that, again, the gloss is beginning to come off Sunak. And I think Annalisa's peeling it off to a certain extent as well. She's doing a, a reasonable, jo a good job on, on that. If you look at what's happened in America, the Biden election is quite interesting. Where Biden didn't, have the surge that some people were expecting in the polls is where he didn't have the organisation on the ground. Where he did, what saved him in places like Pennsylvania was actually the 
the real activist base that's there, the socialist activist base that's there. And I think that's the lesson for Keir and, and the new Labour team is you've got to have that vision, that narrative and the policies to back that up, of course. But as importantly, you've got to translate that into community actions on the ground. Well, this is a bit of controversy around this. So since Biden's victory, which was far from a landslide, Socialist Democrats like Naomi Klein, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have been saying that Biden failed to listen to the left of the party and has been too centrist. Do you think they're right? Well, I think there's an argument. If you are going to have a broad church approach, that's important. So you have a united party. United parties win elections, divided parties don't. Since I've stood down um, as shadow chancellor, I've been nothing but supportive of my successes. When we took over, that our treatment actually was pretty grim. I, I just give the example, it was hilarious at times. When I was in the House of Commons chamber on Treasury business, the Parliamentary Labour Party would boycott the debates. So there would just be me and two other people on the front bench against the whole mass of the Tories. <laughs> and I said, when I, I said to Jeremy, if, well, whenever we stand down or whenever we go, whoever's our successor, we've never ever got to allow that to happen. We've got to graciously hand over and then do all they can to support, disagree on policy by all means, but do that in a way which is constructive and not divisive. And that's what we're doing. But the lessons that came from Obama is actually it's community organization where you win people's respect and you win their loyalty that then gets translated into votes. That's the nature of the campaigning that we have to do for the, for the future, learning from the Biden experience, not having that organization on the ground of committed, dedicated people, I think has cost him in a number of areas. One thing, just thinking about the American-British relationship, Biden and Boris Johnson haven't met, but it's pretty clear there isn't a predisposed warm relationship between the two. Do you think US-UK relations um, are going to be tricky going forward because of what Boris Johnson has said in the past. Well, it will be over Brexit. Anything that in any way damages or undermines the Good Friday Agreement, that's it. They're not willing to engage in any future trade deals or anything like that, and they're quite right. I th so I think he's got a real issue there. Normally on these things with Johnson, there'll be lots of bluster, and then he'll back down in some form. He'll roll over. And I think that's what will happen here. I think the gloss has come off Johnson now that Trump has gone and he's looking pretty isolated. And his style of politics is looking pretty isolated as well. I won't, I won't abuse Johnson, but is he has the same traits as Trump. You cannot have a, a clown in charge, and I don't want to be too derogatory, but you cannot have a clown in charge when you're dealing with the issues like the pandemic. But now, increasingly, the rushing, headlong rushing catastrophe of climate change if we don't act quickly. It's so clear, talking to you, how much you think about the future and want the party to be elected again. Having described yourself as an elder statesman of the left a while back, I wonder, slightly cheekily, if Joe Biden's example has made you think again about what your future might be in the Labour <laughs> No, not really. I took a view early on that if we lost this election, I'd stand down because it, it, we need to bring the new generation on very, very, very quickly. So the key thing for me is just dedicate my time in just engaged in the immediate campaign. So I'm also trying to ensure that we lay a solid basis of ideas for the future that are developed into policies. You also want to spend a bit of time with your family and enjoying yourself every now and again and not having to do, not having to get up at five o'clock 
two or three times a week to do a news round of nine or 10, 11 interviews, all, all of which one word out of place and you're the next headline of a disaster. There's a sense of relief at all of that. John McDonnell, thank you so much for coming on How I Found My Voice. Thanks a lot. Good discussion. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.